Well, some of you know that I used to be a public high school teacher. I taught speech, drama, English, and creative writing. <laughs> Are you an English teacher? Awesome. Well, I better watch my grammar while I'm up here. Um, but, uh, you know, they probably do this to you too. But, but once in a while, my students would try to get me off track. Yeah, uh, fig, you go figure. Uh, and they would think, okay, maybe if we can ask her, you know, like a lot of really funny, weird, wacko, out-of-the-box questions, then we won't have to listen to the lecture, we won't have to take notes, we won't have to do the worksheet, we won't have to do the improv scene, if it was drama class, we won't have to do whatever. And so they asked me a lot of weird questions. Now, I don't think they thought up all these questions, because I've heard some of them before, and I'm sure you had too. But just really silly questions, things like, Michelle Schellenberger, Michelle Schellenberger, um, if you throw a cat out the window, does it become kitty litter? <laughs> Please. Ms. Schellenberger, Ms. Schellenberger, um, why don't sheep shrink when it rains? Get, get it, Ms. Schellenberger, because you know they're wool. Yes, I get it, I get it. Ms. <laughs> uh, Schellenberger, Ms. Schellenberger, um, if one synchronized swimmer drowns, do they all have to die? Oh, please. <laughs> Silly questions. I don't know the answer to those. But you know what? Tonight, as we dive inside of John chapter 5, it seems as though there's a silly question inside this passage. John chapter 5, and I'm going to share this tonight from the message. Now, many of you know the message is not a true uh, translation. It's a paraphrase. And so if you're wanting to really do some, some biblical research or deep study, you don't want to do it out of the message. You'd want to get a concordance and some, um, you know, a different version. But it sure does add a lot of creativity to your devotional life. And I love the message. And so allow me to share this with you. John chapter 5, if you want to follow along in your own versions, John chapter 5, and we'll begin with verse 1. Soon another feast was around, and Jesus was back in Jerusalem. Near the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool. In Hebrew, it was called Bethesda, with five alcoves. Now, these alcoves were kind of like tall, covered colonnades uh, that the people could... Uh, uh, sit under, gather under, and, and have a little bit of protection from the weather and the natural elements. Okay, let's keep going. Hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, paralyzed, were in these alcoves. One man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? The sick man said, uh, uh, Sir, uh, when the water is stirred, uh, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. Uh, by the time I get there, somebody else is already in. Jesus said, Get up. <laughs> get up, take your bedroll, and start walking. The man was healed. On the spot, he picked up his bedroll and walked off. Well, that day happened to be the Sabbath. The Jews stopped the healed man and said, It's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bedroll around like that. It's against the rules. But he told them, The man who made me well told me to. He said, Take your bedroll and start walking. They asked, Who gave you the order to take it up and start walking? But the healed man didn't know, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. A little later, though, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Oh. You look wonderful. You look wonderful. You're well. Now, don't return to a sitting life or something worse might happen. 
the man went back and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. Can you imagine? He's tattling on the healer. That would be a whole other message. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's why the Jews were out to get Jesus, because he did this kind of thing on the Sabbath. But Jesus defended himself. My father is working straight through, even on the Sabbath. So am I. Well, that really set them off. The Jews were now not only out to expose him, they were out to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, putting himself on a level with God. Okay, remember, this is only the fifth chapter. We've barely opened the, the scripture here, barely opened the book. Fifth chapter, and already that death sentence is, is vivid on Jesus' life, isn't it? Just the fifth chapter, we've barely gotten into the book, and already they're out to kill him. Well, let's just hike through this quickly. Let's take it verse by verse, and let's unpack this together and see how this can be relevant to our lives. Soon another feast came around, and Jesus was back in Jerusalem. Jesus uh, had been invited to the feast, but he probably had not RSVP'd. He wasn't probably expected to go. They knew how busy he was. Uh, he wasn't obligated to go, didn't have to go. But guess what? Jesus loves people. More than, um, uh, besides Father God, he loves people more than anything and everything. So Jesus is crazy about you. Oh, he's so in love with you. I loved it the other night when Pastor Buddy, or maybe it was the other morning, when Pastor Buddy prayed, Lord, help our people to know you're not mad about, you're not mad at them. You're madly in love with them. And oh, how true that is. God loves you. He's crazy about you. You serve a people God, and his son Jesus is also people-oriented. Jesus loves people. And he knew that at this feast, there would be a lot of people. Jesus wants to be with people, so he's on his way to the feast. Pe not expected, not obligated, probably had an RSVP'd, but he's on his way to the feast. Well, on the way, near the sheep gate, they're passing this area. There was a pool in Jerusalem, and it's called Bethesda, and it has these five colored, uh, covered columnways, okay? And it says that... Uh, hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, and paralyzed, were in these alcoves. Hundreds. What does that mean? Well, it could have been 236. It could have been 985. It could have been 472. We don't know. But hundreds, too many to count, or we probably would have gotten a specific number. The blind, the crippled, the paralyzed, probably also those who had leprosy. Um, you, you can, I, want you, I want to really paint a specific word picture here for you. This is a human cesspool. I, I, I'm sorry to use such specific language, but this is a human garbage dump. And these people are society's trash. They are the worst of the worst. Their families have disowned them. They have no friends. And they've come here to spend the last few years, maybe, of their lives. So this place, as awful as it is, with all these sick people lying around, is also... Uh, permeated with the odor of death. These people are dying. They have no hope. And I want you to really, again, see the picture. People with open sores and pus running out of their wounds and vultures sweeping down low and picking at the flesh and eating off of those open sores. The stench would have been unbearable. It was that kind of situation. Now, when I read something in the Bible, I, I try to think, okay, now what can I compare that to? What did it look like, smell like, feel like here, or sound like? What, what can I compare that to? And uh, as Gay mentioned a couple of, well, yesterday, uh, that I did have the privilege of being in India, in Calcutta, a few years ago, 
well, mid-90s when Mother Teresa was still alive. And I got to meet her, spent some little time, a little time in one of her leper colonies. I was there with a medical team. And then another day, we spent some time in her house of the destitute and dying. And as we entered this just crude, big concrete building building with double wooden doors, I thought to myself, I'm going to take a picture of everything because I just know this is going to be a life changer. But the closer we got, I noticed the sign on the door, no cameras allowed. And so I just prayed, Father, indelibly etch every detail on the memory of my mind so that I will never forget anything I hear, taste, touch, smell, um, and experience. And as soon as I walked in these double wooden doors in this just crude big concrete building with a concrete floor, there was a, a wall down the middle and on this side there were emaciated women. Many curled up in the fetal position. They were on uh, short cots, maybe this high from the ground because the diarrhea was so profuse. And uh, some of them had rags on. Some of them, bless their hearts, didn't have anything on, but they were in the last stages of life. And then on the other side of that wall, the very same picture on the short, low cots with emaciated men on top of those cots, again, in their last stages of living. The first thing I noticed when I opened the doors was the smell of death. Now, some of you know what that's like because you've experienced the smell of death. And you know what I'm talking about. It's one that slaps you back, isn't it? It forces your, your back against the wall and you think twice about where you are and what's really important. You re-examine your priorities. And so we were there for the day just to simply do what we can. Could, can we be the hands and feet of Jesus? Do we need to give baths? Do we need to mop the floor? Do we need to do laundry, help feed, give water? And so we began doing many of all of those things. And, and in this crude little shower or bathroom area, I guess I would call it that, just kind of a uh, again, concrete square with a spigot coming out of the wall. That symbolized the shower and bath area. And there was a big sign posted on the wall, remember, whomever you are bathing is the body of Christ. So that every volunteer who came in would treat very gently and with love and with great honor and respect the gnarled, twisted bodies that they were trying to give hope to in the last days of their lives. Well, every morning uh, before dawn, the Sisters of Charity, Mother Teresa's nuns and helpers, would go throughout, I want to say the streets of Calcutta, but they weren't really streets. They were just kind of dirt pathways. They would go throughout the dirt pathways or streets of the area, and with their rickshaws, or if they had something with a motor on it, like a little vehicle or a car, they would take that. And they would pick up every morning the discarded human garbage that had been left out, I want to say by the curb, but there weren't curbs. But I want to paint that picture so you know what I'm talking about. And so they would come back with the human garbage and give them dignity and love and respect and honor and care for them in the last few minutes or hours or days or weeks of their lives. And so when I dive inside this story in John chapter 5, I can't help but think, this is it. This is what I'm seeing, feeling, touching, hearing. This is Mother, Mother Teresa's home of the destitute and dying. It must have felt and looked and appeared to be just like that. So these hundreds of people, sick and all kinds of diseases, are just sprawled out all over the place. Now, why are they there? 
Well, because there's a legend. And the legend states that whenever the water in the pool stirs in a specific manner, that an angel has walked by and has caused the stirring. And the first sick person to jump in, walk in, fall in, roll in, get in the water will be healed because they've been the first one to touch the waters from the healing power of the angel. Now, many Bible scholars believe that there was probably a hot springs underneath that pool that caused the water to bubble up at specific times, and that could be true. Maybe an angel really did walk by. That's really not important. That's really not the issue. The issue is here they are dying in the last stages of their lives. You have to be pretty desperate to put all of your hope in a legend, right? They've spent their money on quack remedies that have not proven true. They've been to the doctors that they could afford to, to go to, and the doctors don't have an answer. And what they have is slowly draining life out of them. They will die. And here's this one man who's been there for 38 years, sprawled out by the pool of Bethesda. He's sprawled out there, and he's intently focused on the surface of the water, watching it intensely, so intensely focused that he doesn't even realize who is standing right next to him. <laughs> it's God. It's God. In the form of Jesus, God in human form comes and stands right next to him and has a conversation. God, God, who has angels to supervise and wars to end and planets to keep spinning and stars to deal with and hunger to, to think about and human trafficking. And God is standing right next to him. But he's so preoccupied with what might be a temporary solution, or maybe it'll be a better than temporary, maybe the legend is true, so preoccupied on, okay, I think I can figure out how to make it work, I think this is true, I so preoccupied on what's wrong with me, and I'll never walk, and I'll never move, and I'll, that he doesn't even realize the answer is right next to him. I mean, inches away from him. Isn't that just like us? I think I can figure a way to work this out. I think I can make it work. I think I can. Wait a minute. I have God living inside me. I have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who has a million and one resources to meet my needs, to answer my problems. Wouldn't we be better off if we'd remember that? Oh, that's awesome. And so then we read in scripture, when Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew, because Jesus knows everything, and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? <laughs> now that seems like a silly question to me. I wish I could just push the pause button and step back in time through the ages, through the centuries, and have a little one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> I know you know everything, but maybe you've been too busy with some tsunamis and some earthquakes and some other stuff lately that maybe you need me to help you remember a few things about this pool. <laughs> I mean, this pool is their last hope. You've asked him, do you want to be well? Uh, Jesus, of course he wants to be well. I mean, why else would he be here? Jesus, look, look around. No one comes here just to hang no one comes here to hang out. No one comes here just to have some coffee together. Domino's doesn't deliver here, Jesus. <laughs> you don't come here just to hang out. You come here for one reason only. 
you have no hope. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of truth in that legend that's been going around. And the only reason you're here is because you so desperately want to get well. So Jesus, why would you ask what seems to be such a silly question? Do you want to get well? (laughs) The obvious, of course, Jesus. Why else would he be here? But of course, Jesus knows everything. (laughs) And as we unpack the story we begin to realize that it's not such a silly question after all. How long had the, men, had the man been there? 38 years. Now let's just pause on that fact for a moment. That's a long time to be anywhere, isn't it? 38 years. Now I've gotten to talk to a lot of you. And you are sharp people. You really are. And I just have to believe that if it were you at the pool of Bethesda, you would not have been there for 38 years. It would have taken you about two weeks tops, maybe not even that long, to come up with a strategy. You would have created a plan. You would have watched the water, and you would have noted the stirring of the water. Okay, on Monday, on Mondays, the water begins stirring at 10.05 a.m. Doesn't stir again until 1.03 p.m. Stirs again at 6.30 p.m. Stirs again at 3.15 a.m. On Tuesday, the stirring starts at 9.16 a.m. Stirs again at 7 p.m. Stirs again right at midnight. On Wednesday, the stirring starts. You would have memorized the schedule. You would have had it all down, and you would have contacted some friends or family members or loved ones, and you would have said, okay, on Thursday, the water is going to stir at 11.17 a.m. So I want you here by my side at 11.15 a.m. Water's going to move 11.17. I want you here at 11.15. 11.16, you just pick me up and hold me over the water. And when it's 11.17, just drop me in the water. No need to give me a, a hook or a life jacket or anything because I'll be doing the backstroke. I mean, I'll be the first one in the water. You just do that. He didn't, did he? You would have created a strategy. 38 years goes by. He had no plan. He came up with, he just was there for 38 years. So maybe he really doesn't want to get well. Huh. Maybe he really doesn't want to get well. Let's put it in today's language. Do you really want to live in radical obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you really want to be whole? Yes, I do. And whatever it takes, that's what I want. I'm willing to do anything, anything, Lord, to get that, to get that intimacy with you. I'm willing to walk down front and pray at an altar. I'm willing to call a friend and say, I need you to hold me accountable. I'm willing to join a Bible study. Whatever it takes, Jesus, yes, that's what I want. Or, no, I really don't. But that's a good question. I'll think about it a little bit longer. Maybe he really didn't want to be well. Maybe you really don't want to be whole. Maybe you really don't want to live in radical obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Why wouldn't I want that? Why wouldn't he want that? Well, because he knows deep inside, if he allows Jesus to make him whole, to heal him, to do within him all that Jesus wants to do, everything will change. Everything will change. What, Susie? What will change? Number one, his environment will change. Think about it. If Jesus heals him, he won't continue to hang out here at the human garbage dump anymore. Why would he choose to stay here at this cesspool? No. If Jesus heals him, he's going to stretch out one leg, and then he's going to stretch out another leg and a foot, and then he's 
going to put one foot in front of the other. And he's actually going to get up and walk away from that human cesspool. His environment will change. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable in our environment. Yesterday in the 11 o'clock service, we talked about how Gideon was, was uh, tr trying to th sift and thresh wheat in a wine press. Maybe some of you know what it's like to be in a wine press or a place that's far less than God's ideal for you to be. In the 9 o'clock service, we talked about John the Baptist being in a dark, damp dungeon. Some of you know what it's like to be in a dungeon, an emotional or a spiritual dungeon. And some of you know what it's like to be in an environment that's far less than God's ideal. But you've become comfortable there. And so for you to really become all God wants you to be, or for you to allow God to do in your life all that he wants, you to, all that he wants to do, would require you to get up and change your environment. That can be scary. And he knows this. So maybe he really doesn't want to be well. I know this isn't a great environment for me to be here in this human cesspool. The stench is awful and I'm surrounded by other people who are dying, but I've gotten comfortable here. Well, what else would change? Number two, his identity will change. Now, we're not given his name, so we'll give him a name. We're going to call him PPG because that's what he was known as, the paralyzed pool guy, <laughs> PPG. And when children would get on the bus and they would ride into Jerusalem grade school or middle school, they'd have the windows down and they'd go, hi, PPG. My dad said he was hanging out here at the pool when he went to school. Hi, PPG. He'll be there when we get back from school. You just wait. You just watch. Even my grandpa saw PPG here. When we grow up and get married and have kids, PPG will still be there. Bye, PPG. We'll be back later about 2.30, okay, PPG? See you then, PPG. He was known as PPG, the paralyzed pool guy. Well, if Jesus makes him well, he won't be the paralyzed pool guy anymore, will he? His whole identity will change. Who will he be? That's pretty scary. But scripture tells us that when we come to Christ, we become a new creation in him. We take on his name, his attributes. We begin to act like and smell like and sound like our heavenly father, our creator himself. We take on his creation. Now, a few years ago, a place in Wickenburg, Arizona called me. That's right outside of Phoenix. It's a place called Remuda Ranch. Gay, I'm sure you've heard of Remuda Ranch um, through your counseling, uh, all that you've done through the years. You know that it's a wonderful place that uh, a Christian organization that offers uh, in-house treatment for teenage girls and up to probably about mid-20s females who are dealing with eating disorders. I mean, these girls will die if they don't get help. Their parents have tried everything else, and, and they're here at Remuda Ranch because it's their last hope. And I got a call from them, and I said, you know, they said, some of our, our girls have read your stuff that you've written, and, and we just wonder, would you come here and speak in one of our chapels? And I said, I would love to do that. I'll never forget, as I was standing in chapel waiting for them to come in, many of those girls came in no bigger than my finger, almost. That's what it appeared to be. Some of them, they were called tubers. They brought in their, they're all connected with tubes and brought in the little rolling thing with them. With them. They were constantly being fed the nutrition. Beautiful girls, but in their minds, they were ugly. In their minds, they didn't have any worth at all. I spoke in chapel, and then afterwards I got to, to have some one-on-one -on -one time with a few who had volunteered to do that for me so I could interview them for some writing. And I'll never forget what Mindy said. She was so gut-level honest. 
I, I, Mindy said, Susie, um, this is, she was telling me her story. This is my second term here. Yeah, I spent a whole year here, and I got well enough to go into the halfway program, and I succeeded in that, and so they sent me home. But I relapsed, and I relapsed really bad, so badly that I almost died. They put me in the hospital, and I had to come back again. My parents have had to mortgage their house again. She said, I'm just going to be honest and tell you, this is really a selfish illness. I said, really? Why would you tell me that? Because I don't know of any other teen girl who would say, my eating disorder is a really selfish thing. She said, well, because my parents always told my brother, when you turn 16, you'll get a car. But he's 16 and he's not getting a car because all the money has to go pay for my eating disorder bills here at Remuda Ranch. I said, well, Mindy, it's your second term, so you probably know what I'm going to ask you. Do you really want to get well? Bless her heart. She started crying. Big tears running down her cheeks. She never did answer with a yes or no but she did say Susie I'm so scared if I get well I don't know who I'll be you see I'm known back in, in my little Pennsylvania city as Mindy the girl with the eating disorder and my high school class knows me as Mindy the girl with the eating disorder in my small youth group I'm known as Mindy the girl with the eating disorder I don't like the struggle I hate it but if I become well, who will I be? I will no longer be Mindy the girl with an eating disorder. Sometimes a negative identification is more secure than changing complete identifications, period. Again, God says when you come to me, you become a brand new creation. And he never addresses you by a label. We'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow night. But God would never have addressed Mindy as you, the eating disorder person. Mindy, my beloved child, is how he would always address Mindy. And so if PPG really allows God to make him well, his identity will change. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. I'm not real sure that I want to answer that question with a yes. Do you want to be whole? Yes. Do you want to live in radical obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Yes. Because in your life, the same thing may happen. God may change your environment. What? What, what are you saying, Susie, that in today's economy, with the good job I have, he may ask me to quit and go take another job, and I may not find a job, or he may ask me to move away, different city, different state, you mean overseas. What are you saying? I, I'm not sure. But let's just say that you're in an office and you're flirting with someone who's married God's probably going to ask you to change your environment. That's not a safe place for you to be. You're giving Satan a foothold. If you're sharing your marriage troubles with someone of the opposite sex, he may ask you to change your environment. You're, get, you're, you're allowing Satan to take a foothold. You're letting down the guards. You're becoming vulnerable. Are, are you serious? A few years ago, I was speaking at a, at a women's conference. The worship leader talked to me afterwards and she said Susie she said um I have two girls in high school they're very involved in band and I've become a band parent I've become a band volunteer and, and um I've gotten real involved in the school system and all that and she said the past three years I've been having an affair with the band teacher he wasn't married but she was 
And I had to say, this is a clear case when God is saying, change your environment. It has to end, and it has to end now. God may ask you to change your environment. He may not, but he may. And he will change your identity. You will become, if you decide to live in radical obedience to his lordship, you will become his identity. You will begin to act and react and sound and look and smell like your heavenly father, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing. What else could change? Well, number three, his relationships will change. Now think about it. If PPG is truly made well, he will get up, he will put one leg in front of the other, he will walk away, his environment will change. He will no longer be PPG, his identity will change. But also his friendships and relationships will change. No longer will he hang out with these broken pieces of human garbage next to the pool. You see, these are the people who are constantly bringing him down, who are constantly speaking words of negativity and doom into his life, who are constantly bringing out the worst in him and reminding him of all he can't do and all he will never be. You know, you'll never walk. You know, you could never do that. Now, don't ever go thinking that you're going to do because that's just not in your cards. You'll never... You may have a friend or two like that. And if you want to be whole, Jesus may say, I need you to change some friendships. I want you to surround yourself, and PPG will when he leaves. He will surround himself with people who will speak words of life into him, words of truth, who will put their arms around him and say, yes, I will walk with you. And oh, God dreams big dreams for you. Oh, God's hand is surely on your life. Yes, I dream big dreams for you. Not long ago, I was speaking at a family district camp in Northern California. I needed a ride to, uh, into town. This camp was outside of the city limits, and I needed to work on the Internet for a while, stuff like that. And, and so the district superintendent said, Is any, could anybody here with a car volunteer to take our speaker into town for a, a few minutes so she could just get on the Internet quickly, and she'll need to be there about 20 minutes, and then you can bring her back and just leave her at McDonald's or something, then you can hang out and just bring her back. So this lady, uh, uh, Monica, volunteered, and, and we made our way to her car, and as soon as I opened the car door, it, it was just permeated with cigarette smoke, and I was so happy she had volunteered to take me. I scooted inside the car and slid the door, and she was kind of embarrassed. She said, my husband and I are new Christians, and as you can tell, we're really struggling with the whole smoking thing. I said, well, you know what? I just, <laughs> I just want to encourage you, don't give up the struggle. Don't throw in the towel. Don't just say, it's so tough. I, you, you just keep with the struggle. God will walk with you through the struggle. Don't give it up. I said, but tell me, what's the hardest part about the struggle? She said, well, you know, we're new Christians. We haven't been at this very long. And, and our friends come over to our house a lot. And when they do, they always bring cigarettes or pot with them. And we're just so weak, we just give in and smoke. And she said, we just, we just don't have the discipline yet that we need to have. I said, you know, this is one of those situations where God may say, you need to change your friends. He may not. I said, but here's what I encourage you to do. Tell your friends about your commitment. Recently, my husband and I have made a new decision to follow Jesus Christ. He's changing our lives, and we've given up cigarettes. We've given up all kinds of smoking. And when you come over with your pot and your cigarettes, we're just so weak. We just give in. We're not saying don't come. We love you guys. But when you come, we can't allow you to bring that into our home. Would you honor us by that? If they're really your friends, they will respect that. And if not, 
God is going to ask you to find new friends. God wants you to have relationships and friendships with other Christians who will build you up, who will affirm you, who will encourage you in your faith. So I don't think it was a silly question after all, now that I've gotten to the thick of the story, do you want to be well? I want to say, of course he wants to be well or he wouldn't be here. But Jesus knows what's going inside the heart. Maybe he really doesn't. He's been here for 38 years. He hasn't come up with strategy. And maybe that's because he knows, number one, if Jesus makes me well, I'm going to have to change my environment. That's scary. Number two, my identity is going to change. I'm not going to be PPG anymore. And number three, I'm going to have to change my friends, my friends and my relationships let's get back to the scripture do you want to get well the sick man replied sir when the water is stirred I don't have anybody to put me in the pool by the time I get there somebody else is already in It's a yes or no question. Do you want to be well, isn't it? I mean, he, ne- he never answered the question, did he? He made it an excuse. It takes me back to my teaching days, and I'm sure you've been there. Do you have your homework? <laughs> Ms. Schellenberger, you have no idea what I had to go through last night. And if you had any idea of what went on in my eyes, you wouldn't be asking me. So, whoa. It's a yes or no question. Yes, I have my homework. No, I don't have my homework. This guy made excuses. Uh, uh, Somebody else is already in. Uh, Jesus said, get up. (laughs) When I get to heaven, I want to ask Jesus, did you kind of roll your eyes when you said that? Because that's what it sounded like when we read it. I saw your eyes going, oh, get up. That's how I heard it, Jesus, when I read it. (laughs) The man was making excuses. How often do we do the same thing? Do you want to be whole? Susie, you don't understand. You're single and you don't have children. And uh, for me to get up even five minutes earlier than I already do to have what? A quiet time, devotions, I don't know, pray? Well, that's just like out of the question. Okay, I'm just asking a yes or no question. Do you want to live in radical obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I've got to take him to soccer practice and football practice, and I've got to take him to piano lessons and orthodontist appointments, and it's a yes or no question. Do you want to live in radical obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you really want to be whole? Yes, I do, and I will do whatever it takes to make that possible. No, I really don't. But you know what? I enjoyed the supper tonight. Claudia and the rest of the team, amazing job. Love spaghetti. I love the praise and worship as always. And I've had a good time. Thank you. But no. It's a yes or no question. So could we just not play games tonight and answer it in a yes or no way? And some of you may answer, no thank you. So this man made excuses, and Jesus didn't put up with it. He just said, get up, take your bedroll, start walking. Now notice, when Jesus says, get up, what's happening here? He's asking PPG, PPG to do, <laughs> PPG to do, <laughs> he's asking PPG to do the impossible. You're telling me to get up. How can I get up? My legs are frozen. I've been here for 38 years. You already know that. You're Jesus. You know everything. You're asking me to do the impossible. God will always bring you into something that is way bigger than what you can do on your own. I mean, I've talked to Buddy and Gay, and, and they've both said, Susie, 
You know, back when, back when we first met each other, wow. If we could have any way looked into the future and seen this beautiful congregation, the 77 acres, the wonderful staff that we have, we wouldn't have been able to imagine it. We wouldn't have been able to comprehend it. God asks you to do something that is way bigger than you are. And you can when you're connected with his power. With his power within you, you can do and become all that he calls you to do and become. So Jesus is saying, get up. I will give you the power to do that. I'll give you the strength. I'm going to release your tendons. I'm going to stretch out your sinews. I'm going to, to the muscles that are paralyzed, frozen. I'm going to wake them up, the nerve endings. I'm going to create new life in you right now. But you have to get up. Just obey the sound of my voice. You know, I've noticed something. As I read scripture, the longer I walk with Jesus, I notice that most of the time in the word, whenever a miracle is done by God or by Jesus, God or Jesus always does about 98% of the miracle, and then we get to do the other 2%. In other words, he's asking us to participate. It's so he's saying, PPG, I'll do 98% of the miracle. I will heal your frozen, paralyzed, lame body. But your 2% is you're going to have to obey my instructions. When I say get up, you're going to actually have to get up and move your legs and start walking. Okay, I'll do 98%, you do the 2%. Noah, I'll do 98% of the miracle. I will save you and your family from a worldwide flood. whole world will be destroyed, but I'm going to save you. Your 2% though is you need to start building an ark. It's going to take years and years for you to build it. You start building it, I'll do the rest. The lady who's been bleeding for 12 years, what a disease to have. You are so weak and so anemic to even walk across the room, totally exhausts you. Your money is spent, what you have is slowly draining the life out of you. And I'll do 98% of the miracle. I will heal you of this vicious disease. But what you have to do is 2%. Pull a hooded cloak over your head so people won't recognize it's you and embarrass you and shun you. And you just make your way out into the crowd. It will take more than everything you have. Because again, just to walk across the room wears you out. Make yourself out into the crowd and it will be a frenetic, hectic pace. And you fight your way through the crowd and you just touch any part of me. Even if it's just a little bit of my hem, of my robe, anything a tie on my sandal, anything, the miracle will be done. Lazarus, oh, I'll do 98% of the miracle. But when I call your name, you're going to participate in 2%. You're going to actually get up and walk to the tomb's entrance. Lazarus! So Jesus says, I'm willing to do a miracle in your life, but I want you to participate in the miracle by doing 2%. So I need to just pause for a second and say, what would your 2% be? The miracle that you need in your life right now, what would the 2% be on your part? I, I don't know, but I want you to pause for a moment right now and quickly breathe a prayer. Father, tonight, will you show me what my 2% is? He will show you. He will show you. So Jesus says, get up, and the man gets up. Next, Jesus says, take your bedroll. This bedroll, or this bag, represents, well, baggage. <laughs> Jesus is saying, pick up your baggage and own it. In other words, let's not deny it any longer. Let's not just keep pushing it down and further and further. This is my baggage. I, I don't like it. 
It's ugly baggage. I'm embarrassed for other people to see it. But, but here it is. I claim it. I admit this is my baggage. Now what is your baggage? I, I, I don't know. I'm going to just fill in several blanks. Could it be pornography? Here's my baggage. It's ugly. I don't want anybody to see it. Here's my baggage. It's gambling. Here's my ba baggage. It's criticism. It's negativity. It's, it's, it's uh, deceit and lying. It's cursing. It's an eating disorder. It's a cutting issue. It's you fill in the blank. Yeah, here, here's my baggage. It's abuse. Here's my baggage. Maybe you were abused when you were six or eight or ten. Here's my baggage. I don't, I don't like to look at it. I thought I had neatly tucked it way down deep inside me, but if you want me to call it out and hold it and name it and own it, okay, I will. Here it is. Here's the abuse. I don't want it. Here's the alcoholism. Here's the sexual promiscuity outside of marriage. I don't want that kind of life anymore. Here it is. It's ugly. I don't like for other people to know that I'm dealing with it, but here. Good. Good. Okay, now the next sentence was start walking. Okay, I am, but this is really heavy baggage, Father. I can't walk much farther. I know it is. That's why I want you to lay it down at my feet. Oh, good. You mean you really want that back? Yes, I do. I don't want you to walk with it. I want you to identify it. Name it. It's pornography. It's gambling. It's abuse. Whatever. And I want you to have ownership. Yeah, okay, I, it's mine. I admit it. This is what I'm dealing with. And then I want you to lay it down at my feet. Give it to me. And then I want you to walk away in victory and in freedom. I want you to learn how to soar. Isn't that wonderful? That's exactly what Jesus wants to do with your baggage. Do you want to be whole? If so, Jesus may change your environment. He may not, but he may. He will change your identity. He may change your friendships or relationships. And he's going to say, get up. He's going to give you the miracle that you need to become whole, to become all that he wants you to be, to begin living in radical obedience to his lordship. That may take a miracle, and he'll do 98% if you'll do your part. You participate by doing 2%. Pick up your bedroll. Go ahead, claim it. This is my baggage. Identify it. And then he says, start walking. You can't walk very far with baggage. So go ahead and leave it at the feet of Jesus. And begin to live in victory and in freedom. Well, that day happened to be the Sabbath. The Jews stopped the healed man and said, whoa, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bedroll around. It's against the rules. Why weren't they going, oh, my lanta. Here's a paralyzed human piece of garbage that is now normal and whole. And he's healed and he's beautiful. And oh, my goodness. No, they were nitpicking. Never look to others to validate what God has done in your life. So God does something special in your life tonight, at some point in this special revival. Maybe you go back to work in the next couple of days and you share that with a friend, or maybe the family member says, well, <laughs> he didn't really do that. I mean, it was kind of an emotional thing. Yeah, you came forward, you prayed a prayer, a lot of people were coming forward. He didn't really do that. No, no, no. Never look to other people to validate what God does in your life. You look to God 
and God alone. He told me, take your bedroll and start walking. Well, who gave you the order to take it up and start walking? The old man didn't know, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. You see, culture, society, and many churches are trying to dumb down the gospel. You know, if we could just get a few more celebrities to become Christians. If we could just come up with a great marketing strategy. We've got to learn how to market this Christianity thing. Guess what? God doesn't need another celebrity. He doesn't need a marketing campaign. He doesn't need an advertising strategy. He needs the gospel and the cross being shared. Do you know there are many, many churches today who won't even preach about the cross or the need for repentance, the need to have our sins forgiven, because it's an ugly message. I'll never forget just a few years ago when Larry King was still on prime time and he had his talk show on every evening. I'll never forget his interview with the pastor of the largest church in America say, well, Larry, you're not going to hear a message about sin in my church because I want everybody to feel good at my church. God help us when we start dumbing down the gospel with fluff, with feel good, with polished psychology or common sense messages. The gospel is all about the cross. It's an ugly message, but it's the message of truth and that's the message that God wants you to have. Aren't you proud to have pastors, Buddy and Gay Marston, who do preach the gospel of the truth? Yes. Amen. I'm grateful you have them. Well, the man went back and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made them well. Jesus found him in the temple. He said, don't return to a sinning life. Or something worse might happen. For a long time, I thought, really, Jesus, what worse could happen? You mean he's going to end up back at the pool of Bethesda? You mean if he starts sinning again, all of a sudden his limbs are going to start becoming, his muscles are going to atrophy, and then suddenly he's going to become paralyzed? I mean, what do you mean by that? And then all of a sudden it hit me. What would be worse? Don't go back to a sinning life or something worse might happen. Oh, the something worse is being eternally separated from Jesus Christ. Hell is eternally worse. Do you want to be whole? Do you want, really, to live in radical obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? It's a yes or no question. Yes, I really do. I understand the cost. I do. No, I gotta tell you, I really don't, but I've had a good time here. Thank you. It's your decision. How will you answer that question? One illustration as we close. A pastor approached his congregation on a Sunday morning and he was carrying something behind his back. The congregation couldn't really tell what it was until he approached the pulpit and he set it on the pulpit and then they could tell it was a birdcage. The pastor then launched into his story. He said, just this week, it was just a couple of days ago, I was walking down a country lane in our area, and he said, I, I, I passed a young boy who was carrying this birdcage, and he had three small, shivering, frightened birds in the birdcage. And so I stopped him, and I said, son, what are you going to do with those birds? Well, I, I'm going to kill them. Well, yeah, yeah, did, did, did you know that if you 
pull out their feathers. They start pecking at each other. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they're ugly birds. I mean, they don't even sing. And if you try to help them, they just bite you on the hand. They're stupid birds. And, and then when I finish torturing them, um, well, I'm just going to kill them. How much do you want for the birds? Ah, preacher, you don't want them. Like I said, they're stupid. They don't sing and they don't chirp. They're dumb and they're ugly. How much for the birds? Ten dollars. Done. The pastor then took the bird cage and he set it gently on the ground. He opened the door to the cage and very cautiously, he tapped the sides of the bars and he said to those three small, shivering, frightened birds, fly. One day, Satan entered the presence of Jesus. He came straight from the Garden of Eden. He was carrying something in his hand. What do you have there? <laughs> Jesus, I have them all right here. <laughs> I have every man, every woman, and every child. What will you do with the people? Jesus, I'm going to torture them. <laughs> I'm going to rape them and maim them. I'm going to humanly traffic them. I'll create wars and hunger. <laughs> and when I'm finished torturing them, I'll destroy them. Jesus. How much for the people? don't want these people. They're stupid. They're ugly. If you try to help them, they'll peck you on the hand or <laughs> something much worse will happen. How much for the people? All of your blood! All of your tears, Jesus. Done. It wasn't easy. But Jesus paid the price. And then he took the cage. And he set it gently on the ground. He opened the front door, tapping cautiously on the bars. And he said to you, and he said to me, fly. Now, if we can believe the truth in that illustration, then why in the world, when the price has been paid, when mercy has been granted, when the ransom has been delivered, why in the world would we choose to stay in cages of our own making. Broken, frail, 
well, I, okay, I know it's not the best, all right, but, okay, I know it's far less than God's ideal for me, but I've gotten used to it. This is what I know now. It's become part of me. It's, it's my comfort. But the issue is, you were never meant to live in a cage. You were created to soar in victory and in freedom. Again, the price has been paid. Mercy has been granted and the ransom has been delivered. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to live in radical obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Soar, fly, victory and freedom can be yours. No, I, I, I really don't, but I've had a good evening. Thank you. Oh, dear God, we need you more than we need our cage. We need you more than we need our brokenness. We try to hold on to it because it's what we know. We need you more than our cages, than our brokenness. We need you more than our illnesses. We need you more than our abuse, than our past, than our hurts. I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more, much more than words can say. Oh, I need you more than ever before. I need you, Lord. I, I need you, Lord. Price has been paid. Mercy has been granted. The ransom has been delivered. Will you stand? It's a yes or no question. Yes, I really do. No, thank you, though. I've, yeah, that, that made me think. I enjoyed that. And I, I really liked the spaghetti. But no, thank you. I've had a good time, but how will you answer the question? We're going to sing that song together. If you choose radical obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, or if you have some baggage you've never dealt with and you're still carrying it and for once you just need to leave it at the feet of God then come on forward if God is dealing with you about something way bigger than yourself and he's saying I know the miracle you need I'm willing to do 98% but I've been asking you to do 2% okay, come forward this is your night how will you answer the question could we dim the lights a little bit if that's possible? If it's not, that's okay. But if it's possible, let's dim the lights a little bit and let's sing together. And would you come forward and obey God as we sing? We need him more than anything else in our lives. We need this victory. We need this freedom. We need you more, God. <laughs>